Hello, I'm Ken Hollings. And I'm Julia. And we welcome you most sincerely to the Bright Labyrinth. This is our fourth transmission in the series, and it's called There Must Be Something Wrong With This Sally, which is, of course, something we know nothing about because we record these transmissions absolutely live and without any edits. So if anything goes wrong, we're going to leave it in so that you will worship us for our professional skills and poise. Yes. So. <laughs> well. Um, That's what happens when you go off script. Keep going. Exactly. Um, do machines break down or do they simply start communicating with us in a different, more revealing way? So this transmission questions whether our formal relationship with technology hides a far more disturbing pathology. And we're going to start this with an extraordinary recording of two teachers drunkenly getting an old disc recorder to work. This is an amazing recording. I think it's the reason why we have recorded sound in the first place. Uh, I, I found it on an archive collection of recordings made in the 1940s and 50s at a time when people would quite often send personal messages recorded onto acetate or vinyl from the comfort of their own home. So basically this is the kind of precursor to the tape recorder um, or the MP3 recorder of today. Um, but the point was these recordings are permanent. Once they go onto the acetate, that's it. And this particular recording, uh, I know very little about them, about the recording. It, it's, uh, it's two teachers, female teachers, um, Betsy and Sally, uh, or Sal Boo, as they're referred to on the label in pencil. Um, they've obviously got the machine back from the repair shop, their recording machine, and it's not working. It's creating a sort of slightly blurry sound. So... We're going to read some of the edit. This is the edited highlights. The recording itself is really scratchy and dirty and, and, and full of and full of distortions and clicks and pops. Um, but basically, the more you hear this thing, the more you get into it, the more you realise: a, it's a Thursday uh, afternoon. The two teachers are drunk. You can tell that from their wild language. They're very violent. <laughs> uh, they're very rude. Um, but also, they are just having the most hysterical time with this machine. Why didn't they get rid of this recording? Because it's quite embarrassing for the guitar teacher. But obviously, it was something liberating about this thing, and, and so it was preserved over all these years. Um, so that's the setup. Now, at the beginning, you hear a lot of crackling, and then you hear one of the women say, There must be something wrong with this, Sally. And she goes on a little bit, and uh, she's, they, they, they're actually discussing the machine, and one of them says, in fact, I think they duped you on the whole deal. And I think you ought to go back and punch that fat little man in the record department right in the nose. See, beautiful, beautiful. And, and uh, so, you know, they are constantly addressing the machine. So, you know, it's, it's not recording well. And one of them actually says that they're complaining about the quality of the recording. And then one of them says, not only that, but I can't stand this bobbing up and down. She's referring to the arm of the, of the, of the disc player. So I can imagine it sort of waving at them. And then they, they go into a sort of drunken reverie about some night where the, something horrible had happened. And the, the only bit that I can completely make out is the bit where one of them says... All the police, all the neighbors screaming down below. What will we do, Sally? <laughs> and, and, and someone the other one finishes the, the thought with the phrase, well, I don't know, but it hit me with a bloody axe. <laughs> Which makes total sense. <laughs> makes total sense. Makes total sense. And they get even more violent. They're talking about how they deal with their, some of the students in their class. <laughs> 
and one of them's really frustrated with a with with, with a particular kid in a group uh, in her class, and she says, "I swear to God, this is true. <laughs> Read it, Julia. I can't even look at it." If I only could have put a bag over his head and tied a knot and punched him in the head. <laughs> and this is the bit. This I'm I, I'm really glad I got this line because I love this line. This is. You've got to imagine, right? You, the, you know the, the the immediacy of this, of them recording this. One of the teachers picks up the manual for the use of the machine and starts reading the manual to the machine. And she does it in this kind of sing-song, ironic voice. So she's sort of going, readjust the tone arm to make a good recording. And it's like, what are you doing? You're reading the manual to the machine, like as if the machine is going to understand it. And you suddenly realize that the, 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 the record your voice machine in the room is actually the third protagonist. You know, this is actually a complex yeah. relationship that's going on in this room. So, but that to me is the high point. That's the climax of this thing. Until, with vengeance in her heart, the other one says, "I'm going to take this lovely machine and cram it right up that lovely little man's rear end." You see, this is how our parents and grandparents spoke to each <laughs> other back in the day: um, insane violence and sexuality and <laughs> record players all in one statement. I don't know why they bothered with rock and roll. Really, it's all just happening yeah. right here. This is kind of rock and roll, though. Yeah, it is. It's totally <laughs> rock and roll, and. Again, you could not write this. I, I would, I would consider, you know, the, I, I would, I could not come up with this. The very last thing you hear before it goes on to the the the, the lead-off groove is one of them distractedly murmuring, "Oh, I can't think of anything." Which, Julia and I have discovered, is actually how we feel at the beginning of these tr of these transmissions, yes. rather than at the end of the recording. We're both sitting there going, "Well, I can't, I can't think, of, think anything. of anything. I can't think of anything." Um, that was fun, and I love this recording, and I've spent years listening to it, and, and I still find new things about it. But the, 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 the thing that I'm most excited about, most intrigued about, is this confrontation between the malfunctioning machine and these two individuals. Drunkenness certainly plays its part, and I think that they are much more uninhibited than they would normally be, I think certainly in the presence of other people, for example. But the really, I think, the most interesting and, and significant detail is that if we look at it in the context of how people respond to recordings of their own voice, it suddenly makes a lot more sense. Uh, and that there's two aspects of this. And the first one, which is the most immediate one, is that w when you hear other recordings of people using similar machines, they definitely fall into two categories, very clearly defined categories. There's either the very stiff and the very formal who address the machine as if the you know they're an angry bailiff on the on the on the doorstep. Uh, or they try and read a prepared statement and it sounds really wooden and stilted and they're just not comfortable with it. Or they're absolutely smashed. I mean, the other recording is, well, I love you, Trevor. It, it, it's just for, you know, it, it's like they either kind of are completely inhibited or they go absolutely the other way. It's almost orgiastic. I can't live without you, Beryl. They're just <laughs> completely lost. And, 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 there's some, and we take this relationship with machines for granted today, except, because, except for the second factor, which I find really interesting, which is um, the deep discomfort that most people feel when they hear their voice recorded. It's quite often disturbing. 
um, for example, a lot of the bass goes out of the voice and you suddenly hear something that sounds a little bit lighter, a little bit more nasal. And you realize the, the earth-shaking, earth-shattering change that took place in 1876 when Thomas Alva Edison invents and promotes the phonograph, literally writing with sound. Suddenly we are taken out of our heads collectively, individually, and no one had ever experienced that before. It, it was a completely new experience and utterly disruptive. It changes everything. It changes how, it changes the relationship between eye and ear. It changes our sense of time as well because in order to hear how we speak, we have to record how we speak. So what we're actually listening to is us from the past. Yeah. And so for the first time, as with Sal and Boo and their, their little drunken orgy with their, with their recording machine, um, suddenly these things are preserved, which up until 1876 had been absolutely, absolutely unheard of, nearly impossible. I say nearly impossible because there were some graphic representations of sound. Um, but, the, but, but completing the circuit, as it were, and actually figuring out how to play that graphic representation back as sound hadn't occurred until 1876. Suddenly, all bets are off. What was ephemeral, what, what lasted only a few seconds, what, as Hegel said, mm -hmm. dies in the moment of its becoming, it's gone. You can preserve things. And this is, I think it's up there with movable type, it's up there with the, the networked computer as being uh, innovations, changes, shifts in, in, our, in our universe, which are irreversible, irrevocable, and the effects of which we're still feeling. Like, I still don't think we've fully, um, we've, we've fully seen the, 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 all the implications, unintended or otherwise, of recorded sound in this way. It happened to me recently to listen to this really old recording of my great-grandma, uh, which, of course, I've never met, but I just hear the voice of someone that is dead. Right. And there's this very mystical, both nostalgic and exciting experience. Mm. Like, do you think that in the moment we have sound recording and we have a permanency mm -hmm. of sound, does this change as, us as individuals and makes us more nostalgic in a way and more attached to the past than probably previous generations? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it... Because it, it, um, I think we've always been... A, you know, I mean, nostalgia as, a, as, a, as an observable phenomenon goes back quite a long time, this, this almost pathological yearning for the way things were. I think whatever sense of the uncanny, the mysterious... Yeah, it's more like saudade. It's like yeah. when, you miss, when you have this feeling of... It's, it's kind of a nostalgic feeling but about something or someone that you, you don't know or something you have never known. Hmm. And this, I mean, there's, certainly, there's certainly a very, very close relationship between recorded sound and mortality. Um, that's tied up with this notion of preserving something. So you are able to hear the voice of your great-grandmother great you know, decades later, someone you never met. Um, the, the preservation, if you like, also enhances or uh, highlights mortality. And I think it's interesting that when um, Edison first uh, markets the phonograph, um, through Scientific American, this great declaration, uh, speech has become, as it were, immortal. Um, 
he isn't interested in music. I mean, we, we tend to think of recorded sound records, it's music, but he wasn't interested. He was very, very deaf in one ear. He didn't really care about it. I don't think he could carry a tune. And so he thought that um, the, the phonograph was going to be um, used for business records, dictation, legal proceedings. Music, I think, is about 10th or 11th on his list of possible uses. Mm. Above that, is recording the voices of your family at the point of death. That you could actually use the phonograph to, to record the dying breath, the dying words of someone close and dear to you. This was, this was one of the, this was a feature. This is what he thought would sell. Yeah, probably <laughs> the phonograph. list of features as well. Yeah. Like you can record. Yeah. Um, and, and this Someone's is like, yeah. So, so there is, and, and um, you know, HMV, which was, a, which was one of the rivals to, the, to, to Edison's company, um, their logo was uh, very famous. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the dog Nipper looking inquisitively into the, into the bell of, a, of an old phonograph recorder. Uh, and you know HMV, his master's voice. And what's particularly poignant about this this image is that the reason why Nipper's looking into the mouth of the the recording device with this slightly quizzical look on his face is he can hear his master's voice. His master is dead. His master's gone. And yet there's the voice coming out of this device. So when you next time you see the HMV logo have a look at that dog have a look at its relationship to that machine and how think about its relationship with mortality yeah. and with death i'm just i'm just reading here in the slide this this amazing little quote speech has become as it were immortal it's it uh, what saves that statement is as it were if you take that statement yeah. out speech has become immortal you yeah. are you are actually moving further and further into the realm of the supernatural which will we will cover in the next transmission um but for this, it's, it's, this tremendous rupture has taken place. Our relationship to mortality, our relationship to what is permanent and what is preserved, our relationship to our own heads has changed. You know, our voices, we have literally left our heads. You know, we're out of our heads when, when, when recordings are made. And part of it is the discomfort of hearing what we sound like in a room rather than, you know, within the kind of meat and... and bone of our, of our heads, um, but also we're beginning to hear ourselves as another person. Um, this, is why, this is why, I mean, I love this statement from the, from the French poet uh, Arthur Rimbaud when he said, I is another. Um, he's writing this, you know, just before the introduction of recorded sound, but in the, in the act of listening to ourselves, we become another in a way that writing or any other kind of representation doesn't fully body forth or embrace. The experience of sound is somehow an out-of-body experience. It's a physical presence. Sound takes a lot of physical space as well. Mm. So this duplicity also comes mm. because of a physical contextualization. Of absolutely, absolutely. And I think also, I, I mean, I, I don't believe there are any accidents in history. Certain things happen because the right circumstances are in place, the right set of um, factors are at work. And um, recorded sound, one of the mysteries of recorded sound, the, one of the things that's really fascinating about it, the, the early recordings, it's a mechanical thing, it's a physical thing, it's, it's almost the equivalent of running a stick along a groove, but you've designed the groove mm -hmm. so that that groove will reproduce a particular set of sounds. But 
refined to a, 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 an almost impossible degree. But it's initially you can record without electricity. You don't need microphones. You know, you can use uh, paper cones, you can use greaseproof paper, you can use bristles or needles to record sound. So there's always this question, why didn't anyone invent this before? You know, why weren't the ancient Greeks recording each other? And, and part of it, I think, is A, they probably didn't need to, they didn't want to, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't part of how they interacted with the world, they, they, they had a different set of senses at work. But I think also, the idea of what music does, I mean, just briefly to go back to, to, to the idea of hearing music, is I think the notion of what music meant in the late 19th century uh, was beginning to sort of reach towards something that was beyond this world. You know, I mean, the, the, the late romanticism of composers like Wagner, for example, mm. uh, you know, where, where you, you, know, you have people surrendering to this outswelling of music, this infinite breath of sound that sort of gathers you up and, and sort of almost takes you into some after-death state. Um, I think these things go very closely in, in, hand in hand. So that I think there was the idea that music has this kind of spiritual transcendent mm -hmm. quality. And if you can capture that physically, then you are, you know, you, you really are moving towards the eternal and the yeah. immortal. I mean, just to introduce one of our, one of our favorite, uh, one of, one of our, our shared heroes, one of our favorite guys. He's coming. He is coming, he is coming. <laughs> um, the other thing you have to bear in mind, up until 1876, if you wanted to hear a piece of music, you had to go to a concert hall and you had to sit there and listen to it. So, you know, being familiar with a Beethoven symphony or a Wagner opera or a Debussy piano piece, whatever it might be, you had to be in the room with it. Mm. It was a live sensual fluid experience it was a room it was people it was everything and very few people had the luxury to as it were stage concerts for their own pleasure and one person who could do this is Ludwig II of Bavaria who <laughs> it is no surprise to discover was Wagner's patron and helped Wagner create the the, the Festspielhaus at Bayreuth basically a giant phonograph that's only designed to play back Wagner operas. But Ludwig was, you know, he had the resources, he had the, 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 the regal command to have whole plays, whole operas, whole, con whole concerts staged just for him. Uh, which is, when you think about it, today we have the power of a Ludwig. We can listen to, uh, you know, we can listen to Kraftwerk whenever we want. We, we can just summon them up. All right, Kraftwerk, do computer world for me. You know, yeah. it's there. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and we, we take this, this miracle for granted, the, the simplicity of this. Yeah. Now, I like, you know, when, when, I, when I do put on a record, you know, if I actually put on a CD or a record or I call up a, a, an MP3 file or stream something, I always think about Ludwig sort of having a whole opera performed. It's, it's, it's like a, having that little Ludwig moment. Yeah, <laughs> and I think we should all, we, you know, we all deserve little Ludwig moments. Ludwig moments, moment, yes. Now and again. <laughs> but hopefully we don't die like that. Well, I'm not, we yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm not anxious <laughs> to, I'm not anxious to go out like that at all. Um, but at the same time, there is, so I, I, was, I, once, I was once interviewed about Ludwig's uh, mysterious death by drowning in, in, um, in, the, in, in the Lake, lake. Stamberg. And... Um, 
uh, I, you know, someone said, you know, well, what do you think the solution is? And I said, I don't think there is a solution. Yeah. And I think that's the best bit. Yeah. You know, I don't think he wanted anyone to say, yeah. oh, well, it was definitely suicide or it was definitely murder or it was definitely, um, it was definitely an accident. It's like, no, can you imagine? He would love the mystery of that. The yeah. drama of it would be perfect. But yeah, so sometimes it's so easy for us to reach at things, mm. especially when it comes to music. So we take it for granted, as you, mm. as you were just mentioning before. I think it's one of the things I found really interesting about the kind of the digital shift in, in music is, first of all, and this is why you should always be very careful about predictions. Predictions always tell you more about the time that they're made in than the moment they're about. Uh, is the way in which you know everyone's calmly predicting vinyl would just disappear, it would be obsolete, no one would be interested in it, no one would be bothered. They, you know, vinyl is now, you know, people collect them and treasure them like lithographs, like, yeah. you know, limited edition prints. Same with the audio cassette, you know, that still has a, a, a tremendous, vibrant life of its own. I predict the same thing, I know what I just said about predictions, but I predict the same thing about CDs. I think you're all going to miss CDs when you think they're gone, because, you know, the amount of data you could stuff onto one of those, uh, and, the, and, you know, the beautiful little booklets and all the information. You, um, plus, you can, you know, you could use it to interface directly with your, with your computer. No bad thing, no bad thing. Um, and also, hand in hand with that, more interest uh, in live performances. You yeah. know, the idea yeah. that you actually go and see something happen and you're there in the room with it and it's really yeah. exciting and it's a one-off experience. The, the value of that has suddenly become Increase, apparent. Yeah. yeah, It's like a sound seminar here at the RCA. Okay. John, if we're listening, this is for you. No, yeah. sound seminars are great because um, they're not meant to be recorded. Mm. So who's there is mm. living that experience. And it's just, it just stays within you. And then you can conversate about mm. it. It's just that kind of performative thing that we sometimes forget about in the rush of, of today's life. About, about four or five years ago, this is, I think this is a really great thing to end on because it is about permanence and mortality. And, and, and what, what, we, what we preserve. Uh, about four or five years ago, and I was just about to go into, ha uh, into hospital to have a really serious operation, I actually did a sound seminar with John um, in the senior common room. And we, we'd only, we'd, we had, we, it's the first time we'd met. Um, and it was because it, it seems very much in the RCA tradition, there'd been a confusion and a double booking so his sem his John's sound seminar and a red tape event that I'd been invited to take part in were both supposed to be happening in the senior common room at the same time. So we arranged, the different organisers arranged for John and I to do like a sound clash. Mm -hmm. And I was reading extracts from Bright Labyrinth um, and John was mixing music, you know, creating sequences of tunes mm. between each extract. Someone's recorded, someone had recorded, I've got a, I've got a, I've got an MP3 of the whole thing somewhere, uh, John and I interacting. Um, and so it's, it's really a good thing. I'm, I'm really happy to be reminded of that, of that encounter, because I think like two days later I was in hospital having, having parts of my insides removed. <laughs> um, so, well. and so it all, and you know, to me that, that, that's a perfect tying together of all those bits and pieces. And yeah, absolutely, let's, let's advertise the, the, the sound <laughs> But yeah, so, um, well, in the next transmission, Ken and I will be discussing about uh, bots, networks, and ghosts um, in this transmission called EVP Spambot Poetics. And yeah, let's end this one with a um, laugh. <laughs> <laughs>